Hello, and welcome back to our latest edition of the Fraser Bound Institute podcast. My name is Callum Fox. I'm an economist here at the Institute, and today we're joined by our director, Professor Mary Spowage. In our weekly update today, we'll be discussing all the latest news from across the Scottish and the UK economy. To start us off, on Wednesday, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, published his UK budget alongside, alongside a set of forecasts produced independently by the OBR. Before we go on to discuss the budget, I was hoping we could start off by discussing the main talking points from the OBR forecast. So Mary, could you please start us off by discussing the OBR's GDP forecast, and in particular, if the UK economy managed to avoid a recession? So this was the, the probably the biggest news from the forecasts um, on the economy, which was that the OBR now do not expect the UK to actually enter a technical recession. Now, we've discussed this many times on this podcast and in our blogs that a technical recession is when you have two consecutive quarters of contraction in the economy. And what the OBR's forecasts are currently assuming is after, um, as we've discussed before, a contraction in quarter three of last year in 2022, slight growth in quarter four. They're expecting there'll be a contraction in quarter one, 2023. So the quarter we're currently near the end of. Flat growth, so zero growth in quarter two before slight growth in quarter three. So we don't have any period, according to the OBR's current thinking, you know, a period where there's two consecutive quarters of contraction. I think, though, the thing to take out of the overall picture is still that it's not a great economic situation right now. They're still forecasting that overall for 2023, there'll be a contraction in the economy of, of 0.2%, so very slight, but still a contraction. Um, and it wouldn't take much for the economy to, to be out slightly differently than the OBR are predicting here um, for there to be, you know, that two consecutive quarters to happen in the first half of 2023 and us actually to fall into technical recession. So yes, the picture is better than the OBR were forecasting in November, but you know it's still going to be a difficult time. And just because a technical recession hasn't been, you know, the conditions for that haven't been met, doesn't mean that it won't feel like a recession for many people and businesses. So although the UK has managed to avoid a recession very narrowly, there's still quite a gloomy picture of economic growth going forward in the UK economy. Um, looking at the new inflation forecasts also produced by the OBR, is there any cause to be optimistic around those? Well, they follow broadly the same path as their previous forecasts, but they are thinking that um, inflation will come down a little bit faster than they had um, when they published their last set of forecasts in November. So instead of getting to 3.8% by the fourth quarter, they're saying it will now get to 2.9%, which is obviously significantly closer to the Bank of England's target rate of 2%. Um, you know, there are various reasons for that. There are, you know, generally the economic conditions, um, you know, have, have improved uh, slightly, as, as we've discussed. Um, and, and also um, there are various measures that the, the Chancellor has announced, such as, um, as we're about to talk about, you know, on, on energy bills and so on, which, 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 you know, create a bit of downward pressure on inflation as well. So uh, slightly better news that the OBR think that this, this will come down faster. Um, but let's remember that was already generally the prediction. It's just how fast it's likely to come down. Um, and we should always be careful about politicians taking credit for um, the reductions in inflation, given we're, 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 
we're comparing price levels now to the very high price levels of 2022. So with the upcoming improvements in inflation, has it been any similar improvements in UK public finances? Um, Jeremy Hunt recently announced that he wanted to, um, to reach a borrowing target of keeping borrowing below 3% of GDP. Has this been achieved in this budget? Well, the current forecasts are, yes, that it, it will be achieved. So, um, you know, Jeremy Hunt changed the fiscal rules when he became Chancellor and, and, and presented his autumn statement and made them, to be fair, less challenging than the previous set. Um, that, you know, that it should, instead of having a, a current budget surplus, i.e. only borrowing for investment, it was that the deficit should be under 3%. And um, in the last three years of the forecast at the moment, that is the case, that the, the this is under 3%. He also sell, set himself the, the target that um, the debt, debt as a proportion of GDP, so as a proportion of the economy, should be following by the fifth year of the forecast. And this is indeed met um, in the fifth year of the forecast. Uh, although, obviously, if you keep having this in the fifth year of the forecast, as uh, more forecasts are produced, you're it's going to be a target that you're never going to kind of reach, um, which we should remember. Um, I think there's a couple of things I would say about this, um, you know, improved picture in terms of, you know, meeting these fiscal rules that have been set. Reiterating that they're less challenging than previously is important. I think there's some interesting analysis in the OBR's report also about the extent to which the Chancellor has fiscal headroom against those targets and comparing that to the, the average level of fiscal headroom that previous Chancellors have had at previous budgets. And it's fair to say there's not very much. He's very much more constrained in how much wiggle room he has compared to his targets than previous Chancellors, even if you look back, you know, right to 2010. So that's quite interesting. And another phenomenon that seems to be coming more common is also that the Chancellor has announced a number of measures which he says are temporary, but that he would like to make permanent when fiscal conditions allow. So this is these are measures like the, the capital allowances for businesses, you know, the 100% um, allowances uh, to offset corporation tax for investment in plant machinery and, and software, um, IT equipment, sorry. Um, he said, I'm going to introduce this for the next few years, but I would, but um, I would like it to be permanent when the conditions allow. But in the forecast, this means they drop out for the last couple of years. He's also done the same for defence spending. So you know, basically, these fiscal rules are met because these measures drop out, and that's the only reason they're met. And you know, given he said he would like them to be permanent, it feels like you know another step of. Um, a slight manipulation of the outlook um, in order to ensure that you meet your fiscal rules. So cynically, it's 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 not um, it's not the most transparent way, um, to be honest, to present your policies. And the OBR have flagged these as fiscal risks. So you know, if these are continued, then the Chancellor would not have met its fiscal rules. That's a really interesting point there. Um, now, if I can move on to some discussion about the budget, um, I have a lot of questions to ask you. But I was hoping you could start us off by just telling the listeners what the budget is and why it's important. So the the budget um, typically, normally in normal times, which we haven't had many of in the last five or so years, <clears throat> is um, the UK government's annual announcements of its tax and spending plans. And traditionally, this was done in the spring. 
around the time this budget was done, um, you know, just before the start of the financial year, <clears throat> and the Chancellor would set out tax rates and so on for the coming year or years, depending on um, the kind of uh, the period over which they'd set spending plans as well. Um, now, since 2010, that's been accompanied by the OBR forecasts that we've talked about. <clears throat> The OBR were set up in the wake of the financial crisis to ensure that those tax and spending plans were underpinned by independent economic and fiscal forecasts. So it wasn't just as it had been in the past, the government seeing what the economic outlook is, therefore how um, healthy or otherwise tax receipts might be which would allow you to see how much you were able to spend within your fiscal rules. It's an independent organisation setting that context for the government <clears throat> for them then to make those decisions. So, you know, it's always been a very big um, uh, sort of showpiece in the in the fiscal year, um, and from that, obviously, quite a lot of um, things flow then to the devolved administrations and the sort of spending power that they have. Back in uh, a few years ago, um, Philip Hammond, when he was chancellor, had said that they would move the budget to the autumn, um, not just, but to give give everybody sort of more time to understand what the. Um, the plans might be for the next financial year um, and also it helps devolved administration significantly if it's in the autumn uh, but that's kind of that's kind of been rolled back on now just because of various things um, and what we traditionally have now is is the spring budget and the autumn statement in the autumn. That's great thanks for providing that explanation and um, my first proper question about the budget is um, would you be able to tell us um, what extra funding has been generated from the Chancellor's announcements that he made on Wednesday? So the extra funding that's been generated for the Scottish budget um, was announced as part of the Chancellor's statement. And he said that there was £320 million uh, extra that's been generated for Scotland. Now, we didn't have any detail when he said that in his speech, whether that was for next year, whether it was for the next two years, whether it was for the next five years, there was no information at all provided at that point. And it was only when we dug into the budget documents that we saw it was actually for the next two years. Um, and obviously, if it's for the next year, the next two years are significantly different, potentially, uh, in terms of what spending power the Scottish um, government or Scottish Parliament might have to make different choices. So <clears throat> that was a little disappointing that we didn't know that until we dug into the detail. And we still didn't know when we dug into the detail what the split was between the two years. So... We're going to go into more detail on this in, in a blog we're publishing today, but um, really it would be great if there was much more transparency when the budget is, is um, announced and published over how much has been generated for the Scottish budget by year instead of just a, a block of money where we don't know in what time period it's over, which is, is really quite unhelpful. The lion's share of that money has been generated because of the some of the announcements on childcare. Um, we now understand that the majority of the money will be in 24-25, not in next year's budget. Um, and as I say, it's quite linked to the childcare announcements, which I think we're about to talk about. Thanks, Mary. So if we could go on to those childcare announcements that you previously mentioned. So currently in Scotland and the UK currently, um, the government provides 30 hours of free child free childcare for three and four-year-olds. Could you tell us what's changed? Um, and if this policy that's been implemented in the UK will also be implemented automatically in Scotland? So it's worth saying first that childcare is a devolved issue. So all decisions on this will be made by the Scottish government. Um, it's also important to stress, while there is provision for three and four-year-olds, both in England and in Scotland, it's different. 
um, and it's in Scotland it's provided for all three and four year olds whereas in England it's for um, those who with working parents so um, the, the focus in Scotland is more on it being a universal provision for early learning and development I suppose whereas it, it's more the more focus is more on childcare to ensure that people can work in England now, those might seem like semantics, but I think it's important to understand the kind of policy drivers behind the introduction of childcare in Scotland and it being slightly different from, from the policies in England. Um, so um, there will be extra funding generated, though, by both the expansion of wraparound childcare in England and then its uh, expansion of childcare to two-year-olds first and then uh, to to those aged nine months to two years um, from 2025 onwards. So more money will be generated. Um, but you know, it's unlikely that the sums of money that would be generated from um, the spending in England would be sufficient for the Scottish government to offer the same sort of provision that they have for three and four-year-olds to one and two-year-olds because of the differences I mentioned that it isn't for everyone in England, it's for working parents. So the Scottish government, if they did wish to, and there has been discussions about this, it's, it's not a new discussion in Scotland, they did want to expand provision down to, to one-year-olds, for example, which is similar to three and four-year-olds, then, then they would, to a certain extent, have to find some money from elsewhere in their budget because it's unlikely that the consequential spending will um, you know, be enough. I think the final thing I'd say about the provision um, in England and the expansion as it's, it's all very well for the government to say that they're going to be funding places for one and two year olds and then maybe down to nine months. Um, but I think as, as we've heard from a number of providers of childcare services um, since the budget was announced, at the moment, uh, children of that age, um, the charges tend to subsidise their provision for three and four year olds because the government don't give them enough money to actually cover the costs of it. And if the government are then setting the price for all the provision of childcare, um, if they don't get that price right and actually fund the places uh, in terms of how much they cost, then what we're just going to see is a lot of providers pulling out of, of actually offering these places. So it's quite important that the government gets that price point right. <clears throat> and we should remember also that a lot of this provision would be due to come in probably after the next election. So we're going to have to wait and see kind of what the, the next government actually choose to do uh, on childcare. That's a really interesting point, and we'll wait and see what the next government announces regarding that childcare payment. One of the previous um, headline policies that were announced um, by the Conservative government was um, the energy support scheme that was meant to come to an end in March of 2023. Could you tell us what's changed with that? Um, has it been extended um, or is it stopping this month? So, yeah, there's a number of different schemes that the, the government announced in various stages over the autumn. Um, but the first one and the main one for households to think about is the, the energy price guarantee, um, which was brought in in October to ensure that a household with typical use um, would pay around £2,500 per year. Um, that was due to go up to £3,000 per year um, as of the 1st of April. Um, but that's been extended and kept at the current level until the end of June. As we've always tried to emphasise with this, this is not a cap on bills. It's simply based on typical use. It's, it's charged per unit of electricity. You use more, you'll pay more. You use less, you'll pay less. 
Um, so that that has been extended, but it doesn't mean from a household's perspective that they won't feel like their bills are going up in April because the previous energy discount that everybody was getting, so this, this was the £66 a month, will come to an end in March. So it, even though the energy price guarantees is kept at its current level, from a household's perspective, you'll feel like your bills have gone up a wee bit. Um, now, it is likely that um, when the energy price guarantee comes to an end at the end of June, that the, we'll revert back to the off-gen energy price cap, which will be lower than the level of the current level of the energy price guarantee. It's not from April to June, which is why the government's extended the energy price guarantee, but it is likely to be from July onwards, probably around to um, 2,200, 2,100, something like that for the typical um, household use. So our bills are likely to come down a little bit um, as we move into July, thankfully. But it is important to to stress that it will still feel from a household's perspective that the bills have gone up a wee bit when we move into April. That's really interesting. And so that was the support rolled out for households. Has there been any additional support rolled out for firms in terms of the higher costs that they might be facing currently? No, uh, not above and beyond which was announced in January, which was essentially compared to the subsidy that, that businesses are already getting on a unit, um, the government are, are are significantly reducing that come April. Um, and so anyone, any business or charity or um, anything like that who um, hasn't been able to fix their price uh, will see an increase in their, a significant increase in their bills come April. Um, and that might make conditions pretty difficult for, you know, smaller businesses um, or, or charitable organisations operating who are going to see a significant increase in their bills. That's really interesting and definitely will be a challenging business conditions for small and um, small businesses and charities going forward. Can I go on to um, some questions about the new disability payment reforms, which have now been announced by the UK government? Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Sure. So the Chancellor um, announced that there would be some changes to, um, to disability benefits uh, at the UK level. Um, particularly focusing on the work capability assessment that is done to, um, to allow claimants to claim a, an enhanced level of universal credit. So essentially, if through this assessment they were deemed not able to work, they would get, get a higher level of payment. Um, they're going to scrap that. This is, this is all due to come in early in the next parliament, let's remember, so it's not anything that would be imminent. But they wish to scrap that so that um, the, 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 the ability to work people who have disabilities um, wouldn't be worried about losing that enhanced level of payment um, if they did wish to to work and, and things like that and that they would only get one assessment through the personal independence payments system. So there are lots of questions about this at the UK level as well that a number of people have raised around those who receive that higher level of UC at the moment that enhanced level but don't don't currently claim the personal independence payment. How will that work? Um, and there's also uh, a particular issue about devolution here because um, PIP has been devolved to the Scottish Parliament, has been replaced with a different sort of benefit called the Adult Disability Payment in Scotland, and the assessment that goes alongside that is different. Um, the criteria for ADP is slightly different and slightly more generous. Um, and so the question really is, would the assessment that was done for adult disability payment in Scotland entitle you to that higher level of UC? Um, 
you know, would that also be the passport for Scottish residents when it is slightly different? Um, so we're not sure yet how this is all going to work, but it's one of these sorts of complications that comes from um, the use of various parts of the benefit system to passport you onto other things when there's a mix of reserved and devolved benefits involved. That's great. Thank you, Mary. And um, in my final question, I'd like to ask you about some of the recent changes to alcohol duty and potentially the controversies surrounding that. Yeah, so the, there was there was due to be a, a number of uplifts to alcohol duty coming in um, as of um, you know early this year, which were delayed by the UK government to August. Um, and I suppose the controversy, particularly in Scotland, has come from the fact that the Chancellor didn't change most of that happening, didn't stop that most of that happening from August. So it was more the absence of any action on it um, that's caused the controversy for people like the Scotch whisky industry. He did announce um, some reliefs on, on draft, um, which was designed to um, incentivise um, people drinking in pubs rather than at home. Um, so there was that um, announcement, but there wasn't any halt to the uplift in alcohol duty um, on spirits, for example, come August. So what this means for um, uh, the Scotch, for Scotch whisky and actually all spirits um, and wines is that there will be a significant uplift to duty on these products uh, come uh, August. One of the interesting things is that will contribute a little bit to inflation, you know, because the price of these goods will will go up, but obviously it will also raise more money for um, the exchequer um, through higher um, take on tax. Um, if anyone's interested in the sort of rate that's being used to uprate this, um, RPI is used for this. Um, and we've been digging around into exactly which measure and which month of RPI is used um, for this uprating because we weren't kind of clear from what had been published. So we've, we've found out now exactly how it works. And so we'll be explaining it in our blog in detail, um, but it wasn't particularly transparent. And it's worth saying that it's done quite differently to the way uprating is done for, for things like benefits. Um, so it's a fair question to ask, you know, what, why is it so different? And why does it use the fairly widely discredited measure of inflation uh, that is RPI? Great, thanks for going over that, Mary. And thanks for making some time in your busy schedule to join us today on the Fraser Valander Institute podcast. If anyone's interested about um, the recent analysis on um, Wednesday's budget, then they can find more on the Fraser Valander Institute website. That's fraserofallander.org. You can also keep up to date um, on all our recent publications um, on our socials, um, on our LinkedIn and Twitter, and by listening to this podcast. Fast.